Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to Him belong, oh, they are weak, but He is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me, oh yes, Jesus loves me, oh yes, Jesus loves me, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, loves me still, though I'm very weak and ill, that I might from sin be free, he bled and died upon that tree. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. Oh, I know that Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. For the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves me, he who died, heaven's gates to open wide, he will wash away my sin and let this little child come in. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, I know that Jesus loves me. Oh, yes, Jesus loves me. Bible tells me so. And yes, Jesus loves you. Do you know that Jesus loves you? Oh, yes, Jesus loves you. Tells. Yes, the Bible tells. Oh, the Bible tells me.
Wow, what a great job, and what a great song, what a great theme. In fact, that's the theme this morning, and I had no idea what Chris was going to sing there, Jesus Loves Me, but he could not have picked a more appropriate song, and then the choir sings, God so loved the world, so I could almost just fold up my Bible and go home. They have preached my message today. If you'd open your Bible, please, to the book of First John. First John, chapter number four. First John four. Now, I've been praying and asking the Lord to direct me in the uh, next few weeks here, leading up maybe through Easter or uh, a little before. And I've asked Him to give me a, a, just a fresh series of messages. And you know. I've, I've determined to, to do a series of messages, but it may not seem like a series to you. What I'm going to preach on over the next weeks is the great gospel themes of the Bible. The great gospel themes of the Bible. Things like the prodigal son, a message on the prodigal son, heaven and hell, the blood of Christ. Uh, the cross, the Lord's return, uh, great gospel themes. And here's the reason. Now, many of you have really been doing a wonderful job inviting people to, uh, or, or you've been sharing your story with them. Now, when you share your story, it should open up opportunities for you to be able to uh, talk to them further about the Lord. And obviously, I'm assuming that you're going to be inviting them to come to church. If all we do is share our story and we never go any further, we're not going to win a lot of people to the Lord with a three-minute testimony. That's designed to be able to help us pick people's interest and, and, and expose people to the reality of the Christian faith, but hopefully it leads to a further spiritual conversation and further uh, we want them to come to church. The Bible says, go out into the highways and hedges and tell them to come in that my house may be full. Now, here's what I want you to know to encourage you in your witnessing. Every time you bring a guest to our church on Sunday morning over the next six, eight, ten weeks, I want you to know that I'm going to have an evangelistic gospel message for them, and your friends can be saved if they don't know Christ, and their hearts can be touched if they are Christians. It'll be something for Christians as well. But I'm going to do everything I can to capture those great gospel evangelistic themes of the Scripture. And so you do your best to bring people here to hear them with me, and we'll all be blessed because that blesses the hearts of God's people when they hear the gospel as well. Now, I began today, and so... The subject this morning is the most profound truth in the Bible, the most profound truth in the Bible, in the Christian faith. And if you would stand with me, and we'll read from the book of 1 John, chapter number 4 this morning, 1 John 4, and I'll begin, in, begin the reading in verse number 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Do you see those three words there? God is 
love, a description of God's character and His nature. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, or demonstrated, in this was demonstrated the love of God toward us, because that God sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. And, his, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, there's one of those $50 words, propitiation. But it's a Bible word, and we don't run from it, and we don't disregard it because it has a very important meaning. Propitiation means He sent Him to be a satisfaction or an appeasement of the wrath of God against sin. So if you read it like that, it'll make so much sense. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the satisfaction or appeasement to rescue us from our sins. But I especially call your attention to verse 8. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. And Holy Spirit of God, this morning again I pray, because I so know that if you don't work in people's lives, I cannot convince them. Holy Spirit, will you come and bring this message to bear in the lives of every person in the building? And may we know that God is love, the most profound truth in all the Bible, in our Christian faith. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, and you may be seated. Those three words today are my subject, God is love, and never was there more truth packed into fewer words. Let me say that again, never has there been more truth packed into fewer words than in those three words, God is is love. A very famous theologian was asked about what he considered to be the most profound truth in all of the Bible. He had lectured all over the world. He had written books. He had done these scholarly seminars and clinics. He was well known in Christian circles. And so someone said to the theologian, what do you consider to be the single most profound truth in theology. And the old professor answered very simply with the words of Chris's song, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. Boy, I heard that story the first time many years ago, and I've told it a number of times. But when I think about that, it just brings joy to me. It makes me want to shout for joy. The greatest, most profound truth of all, Jesus loves me, this I know. You're not too old for that. You're not too intelligent for that. You haven't arrived at a point in life where that is a trite and simplistic statement. In fact, it's, as pro- it's profound. It's as deep as the ocean. Jesus loves me, this I know. Does that stir your heart today when you think about that, my friends? And you know, that's unique to Christianity. You can look at all the world's religions. I'm not authority on, an authority on all of them, but I have studied most of them. And I do know this, that only in the Christian faith 
where you have the God of the Bible. You have the God of the Jews and of the Christians. You have Jehovah God. And of all the other gods and all the pantheon of gods, Allah and the gods of the Hindus and the gods of the Buddhists and so on, but nowhere in any other religion do you find a personal God who loves his people, is concerned about them, and cares about their well-being. The only place you find that in Christianity, or the only place you find that is Christianity, that little phrase, God is love, makes the Christian faith absolutely unique. I'd like to talk to you about the reality of that phrase, God is love, because it's the great theme of the Bible, that God loves his people, that God personally cares about you and he cares about me. And we don't have to go very far in knowing about the Christian faith. I think of the most familiar verse in the Bible, probably the most often quoted verse in the Bible is John 3.16. I was going to have you quote it with me, but I want you to just look up here and fasten your eyes on me and listen to me quote it. And I want you to think about every word of it as I say it to you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, don't let over-familiarity strip that of its essence to you. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever, whosoever, that's you, that's me, whosoever believeth in him should not perish. There's the possibility of hell, of eternity without him, perishing, should not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. The third word, for God so loved the world. I mean, that puts emotion into it. That emphasizes the greatness of it. It's a little two-letter word, but, oh, man, you can fit the whole world into that two-letter word. God didn't just love the world. He so loved the world, ladies and gentlemen, that he gave his only begotten son. His love is self-sacrificing to us because he gave his son. I have one son, and I can't think of anything or anyone for whom I would willingly give up and volunteer the life of my son. He's precious to me. I love him with all my heart. And here's God, only one son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet God willingly, voluntarily gave up his son because of his love for you and his love for me. It was a self-sacrificing love. But God's love is not only self-sacrificing, it has no restrictions, and it has no limitations to it. God so loved the world, the world, the world. That's everybody. That's not the world of nature and the world of trees and mountains and seas. God so loved the world. That's the world of people. That's talking about you and I. It's talking about you and me. And so God put no restrictions on it. It's to the whole world. It's to the black man, the white man, 
the yellow man, the red man, is to the poor man and is to the wealthy man, is to the educated man and to the illiterate man, because in the sight of God, they're all precious in his sight. There are no restrictions. There are no limitations. Whosoever, and millions of sinners down through the years have heard a message like this or read the Bible, and they saw that word whosoever, and they said, hey, that's for me. That's talking about me. You know, had God put into the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that if Bill Monroe, William T. Monroe, believes in him, he'll never perish. But I wouldn't know if that was me because I looked up on the Internet one day my name, and there must be 10,000 William T. and Bill Monroe's living in this country. But when he put whosoever in there, I said, that's for me. That's for any single person who believes that and accepts that this morning. There's the reality of God's love. A.W. Tozer was a great author of the last century, a great scholarly, warm-hearted, devoted servant of Christ. And here's what Tozer said. Listen to this quote. The love of God is one of the great realities of the universe. It is a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. But it is a personal, intimate love as well. God does not just love populations. He loves people. He loves not masses of men. He loves all of us. And he loves us with a mighty love that has no beginning and can have no end, end of quote. God loves you, my friend, today is what I want you to see and hear and sense and feel as you listen to me preach the gospel to you this morning. In the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 35, the apostle Paul asked a question. It's a very simple question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ. What is there that can possibly happen that would separate me from the love of Christ, the love of God? And then I go down to verse number 38 and 9, and Paul answers his own question, who can separate us? And in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 38, he said, I am persuaded that neither death, death can't separate me from the love of God, nor anything in life, nor angels, nor principalities, that would be demonic beings, nor powers, nor things present, anything going on today, nor anything in the future, things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature, nothing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Isn't that a wonderful passage today? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. You're not going to lose contact with God because he loves you, as he said to Jeremiah, with an everlasting love. And there's another verse I found as I studied this week. In fact, I'd like for you to turn there with me. And it's in the book of John, chapter number 17. And Jesus is praying in this scene here. This is his prayer in the garden. But here's what it just struck me. I don't think I've ever really pondered this and got hold of this like I did this week. In John chapter 17 and verse number 23, 
Jesus reveals what is most, the most astonishing truth I think I've ever thought, uh, thought about. And here's the truth, that God loves me as much as he does Jesus himself. Did you know that? That sounds like heresy. I mean, I, I never heard anybody say that. And I thought, that's incredible. I, don't, I, I, don't, I can't get a hold of that. But look with me. Jesus is praying, John 17, 23. And he says, I am them and thou and me that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that the world may know that you, Lord, have sent me and you have loved them, speaking of his disciples, as you have loved me. That is incredible, ladies and gentlemen. That ought to make a Baptist, a cold-hearted, backslidden Baptist shout. That, Jesus, that God, Jesus Christ said it. I didn't. God loves me as much as he did his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have loved them just like you have loved me. Is that not incredible this morning, folks? God's love for you is a reality. It is a reality. But you know what? It's often doubted. It is so tragic that we often doubt God's love. And I have to say that in my life, I've doubted sometimes, for example, I, 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 don't, I don't recall ever doubting that, about God's power in my life. I don't ever recall doubting God's power. I could look at a storm. I could stand and look at the Atlantic Ocean. I've flown over the Alps and over the Andes and the Rockies. And I see those great snow-covered peaks. I never questioned that God is a God of such immense power God could speak the whole universe into existence. I never questioned that. I never have doubted God's knowledge. I've always believed that God knew everything. Even as a little boy, I'd do something wrong and then sort of cower and cringe because I knew that God saw it and God knew me. And God knows everything. He knows the number of the hairs on our head. No, I never doubted that God had all power, and I never doubted that God had, had all knowledge. But I, to my shame, have to acknowledge that sometimes I've doubted his love for me. Have you ever doubted that God loved you? I tried to analyze it and think about it this week. Why would we do that when it's the theme of the Bible? And I've tried to lay out just a few verses previously in the message here to really make you feel and know that God loves you, that he loves you, not just general populations, but that he loves you individually and personally. And I've read to you the scriptures that support that and told you some stories. But why is it that in spite of all that, I still doubt that God loves me at times in my life? I think there's three reasons people doubt it. If you're writing some notes this morning, you might want to put them down. Why do people doubt? Why do I doubt sometimes the love of God? Number one, because Satan tempts us to doubt God's love. I'm going to tell you, we don't give enough recognition to Satan's opposition in our life. And Satan comes and he puts in your mind a question. Oh, God doesn't really love me. Bill Monroe's up there preaching that stuff, but... I feel as cold as a stone. No, I don't know that God loves me. I want to tell you, look, 
And think about that. That might be coming from old Slewfoot himself, the devil. You remember when he tempted Adam and Eve? What did he tempt them about? God put them in that environment there. It was absolutely perfect. And he saddles up to them and he says to them, did God really say, raising a question, inferring that God was holding back and not treating them fairly, that God was not acting in their best interest? And he got Adam and Eve to doubting that God loved them like God did love them. And doubt came into their heart. And you know what? When doubt and unbelief come into your life, then it's going to be harder to obey the Lord. And, of course, they didn't. So the first source of doubt is that Satan tempts us to doubt that God loves us. Number two, our own feelings of unworthiness keep us from believing that God loves us. Our own feelings of unworthiness. I know that's been the case with me sometimes. Why would the creator of the universe care about me? I'm not that significant. When I think of God looking down upon the earth, it's almost like looking down on an anthill. When I look down on an anthill and all those tens of thousands of ants running around and, you know, none of them are very significant. And in the sight of the creator, how could we human beings be that precious to him that he would give his only begotten son? And it's really of our our own feelings of unworthiness that we project onto the Lord. And then when Satan comes and slithers up and puts a little question mark in there, we're in trouble. Our faith is being destroyed. Always remember this. Oh, hear me. Don't ever get this confused. God doesn't love you or me because he looked down at us and saw something so winsome and so attractive and so wonderful that it drew us, that drew his love to us. Do you know why God loves me? He loves me because of what he is. God is love. It doesn't say that God has love. It says that God is love. His very nature is to love us. Just like the sun shines up there in the heavens, and it's the nature of the sun to give warmth. I look up at that light, and it's projecting light down here. It's the nature of a light to project light. The light is not working, trying to see something down here that's worthy of light, It's the nature of the light to project the light. It's the nature of the sun to project the warmth and the heat. It's the nature of God. He loves whether I respond or not, whether I'm worthy or not, no matter what I've done. Corbett gave his testimony. Here he is as a 13-year-old lad. He receives Christ as his Savior, but he gets in with the wrong crowd, and he goes in the wrong direction. But the Lord never gave up on him. He didn't love him one bit less because he was not living for him. God's love is a reflection of his nature. He loves because he's God. He can't un-God himself by not loving. He'll always love. 
He'll love whosoever. He'll love the whole world. He'll love you. He'll love me. He'll love us regardless of what we do or have done. Someone said the definition of unconditional love is this. Unconditional love means that there is nothing you can do that would cause God to love you more. And there's nothing you can do that would cause God to love you less. Now comprehend that for a moment. There's nothing that you could do. You can work your fingers to the bone doing all kinds of good deeds and religious service, and God will not love you one bit more. God doesn't love me more because I'm the pastor of this church than he is because you're a member and you're a member and you don't have as prominent a role in the life of the church. But I'm going to tell you, God doesn't love me for all the things I do. God loves me because he's God. And he doesn't cease to love me when I do wrong. The most despicable human beings I've seen in my lifetime is this ISIS crowd. And that's such a on-the-margins illustration, and yet I believe God loves Mohammed or whatever his name is. Those cold, calculating killers. Because God doesn't love us because of what we are. He loves us because of what he is. Satan tempts me to doubt the love of God and brings unbelief. Feelings of insignificance and unworthiness on my part cause me to doubt God's love. And then there's a third, and that's the tragic events of life can often cause us to question his love. The tragic events of life. This week, the phone call came to me that a young lady who grew up in our church, 31 years old, and the next morning her husband looks at her lying in the bed next to him, and she doesn't respond, and she's dead. Dead of a heart attack at 31 years of age, died in her sleep. And she leaves behind two children. And so if I'm thinking like the natural man, I might go along this path. Well, why, if God loved her, if he loves me or if he loves us, why does he allow things like that? And there are people sitting here today. Why is my child on drugs, Pastor? I brought them to church. I sent them to the Christian school, maybe. I reared them to love the Lord. We prayed. We read the Bible in our home. What's, I, 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 why did God let that happen to me and to my child? I love my child as much as anybody else's child. They're not intrinsically worse or better than others. Why, what in the world happened, preacher? Why did God let that happen? And people become skeptics. They turn on their own faith sometimes when they can't understand the events of life. The mother cradles the new little newborn baby up at the nursery at the hospital, and the baby is severely handicapped. Oh, God, why did you let this happen to me? Why did my husband leave me for another woman? The events of life. 
If you're not grounded, if you're not thinking biblically, why did I lose my job? My family's had this little business. We've worked at this business for 20 years. We didn't do anything to cause this bad economy. And our supplier shut down out in somewhere else. And now we're out of business. Why did God let that happen, preacher? The events of life. Then these international events, national events. I mean, what a week if you watch the news. This poor Jordanian pilot soaked in gasoline. They throw the flame out there, and it edges up to that cage. And that poor man clawing at the bars of that cage and his body burning like fuel. And I, oh God, why? Why? Children being used as sex slaves and sold like automobiles over there in the Middle East. People being beheaded and crucified. God, why? If you're a God of love. All of those things, Satan uses them. God doesn't really love you. I don't have time to get into the philosophy of all those things or why bad things happen in the world like they do, why there's so much suffering. That's another message. I do take you back to the truth of the Word of God. I take you back to the fact that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. I take you back to the truth of 1 John 4 and 8. God is love. And we'll deal with those things, and we've dealt with them before. But let me give you some evidences of God's love before I stop. As I talked about Adam and Eve, God created them and put them in a perfect environment, the Garden of Eden, the Bible calls it. Every single need that they had was met when God created them. Every single need. Their physical needs, food, The environment, the climate in those days would have been perfect. There they are. Every single physical need was met because God loved them. And he provided a perfect heredity and a perfect environment for those two first people. And then it seems like Adam was lonely in the course of time. And God made for him a wife, Eve, a helpmeet, the Bible says. And so he created a family. And he met their, not only their physical needs, he met their emotional needs. And now they have love. And they have a family, a mother and a father. And they have children. God met their physical needs. He meets their emotional needs through their family that everybody would feel love. And then he meets their spiritual needs because he made them for fellowship with himself. And so he comes down to the garden and he walks with them in the afternoons and he fellowships with them directly. God 
and a man and his wife walking through that beautiful, beautiful, pristine environment. But then Satan comes and evil comes. And Adam and Eve sin. You know the story. I don't have time for the details. They sinned. They disobeyed. They knowingly, they intentionally broke the law of God and disobeyed him. It would seem then that God would have said, that's it. I've had it. He would just have obliterated them. They wouldn't have ceased to exist and he would have gone on with life. But no. Number two, the second evidence, God cre- the first evidence, God created man and provided for his every need, physically, emotionally, spiritually. But secondly, God patiently continued to show them his mercy, his grace, his kindness, and his love. He didn't cancel the consequences of sin. It was still true in the day that you sin, you will die. Their soul, their spirit died that day, their spirit And ultimately, their physical body died. But he didn't cancel the consequences of their disobedience, but he did provide for them a means of forgiveness. We go down a few verses in the account, and we read and we see this, that God clothed them in the skins of these little animals. Those clothes represent the life of that innocent substitute. God provided a means of escape whereby they would not have to be punished for their sins. And fellowship could be renewed, and he could go back and fellowship with them through the merits and through the shed blood of those little temporary sacrifices, if you will. And then time passes. Now listen to me. And the greatest evidence of God's love, the greatest evidence of God's love is a lonely cross on a lonely hill. 2,000 years ago. I want you to turn because I hope you'll mark it in your Bible. It's in the book of Romans chapter 8. There's a verse there that some of our soul winning plans, we've used it extensively, but let's just make sure that everybody's got it marked in your Bible. I said Romans chapter 8. I mean Romans chapter 5. I'm sorry. Romans chapter 5. Will you turn there? And depending on the translation of the Bible that you might be reading from, my Bible says, but God commendeth his love to us. But your a second word might be God proved his word or his love for us. God proved his love for us. Another way to say it would be God demonstrated his love. Do you want to know the greatest proof, the greatest evidence, the greatest demonstration of the love of God in all of history, it's right there, Romans 5 and 8. God demonstrated, commended, proved his love to us while we were yet sinners. He didn't die for good people. Good people don't need anybody to die for them. He died for sinners before we cared about him, before we knew him, before we loved him. God demonstrated his love to us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us. My, what a tremendous, what a profound, the most profound truth in the Bible. God loves us. When I say the name Pat Tillman, you know who I mean. 
Pat Tillman was a star in the NFL. He played for the Arizona Cardinals. And 9-11 came, and they, I read some of the accounts that Pat Tillman was almost obsessed after that with wanting to defend the country. And he, he was such a deeply patriotic young man, all 25 years old or so. He had just signed a multi-year, multi-million dollar contract to play defense for the Arizona team in the NFL. But he left that behind, and Pat Tillman went and joined the Army, just went down to the recruiting station like everybody else and signed up. He distinguished himself as he served there through his basic training and so on. He applied for the Rangers, and they took him in, the Army's elite special forces unit, and he became an Army Ranger, highly trained now and skilled as a warrior. And they assigned him to Afghanistan. And he went there, and he hadn't been there any time, two, three, four months. And Pat Tillman was killed. And later, the information came out. He was killed by friendly fire. Someone in our, on his own team accidentally killed him. Now, today, when we hear his name, the word hero comes to my mind. He was a hero. Why would I call him a hero? Because he left behind fame and glory and fortune, and he went and sacrificed. That's the key word. He sacrificed. He gave all that up because he loved his country, and he was then killed accidentally by his own, by his own friends, if you will. But when I think of Pat Tillman, I think of another, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus Christ came. He didn't give up a multi-year NFL contract. He gave up the glories of heaven. He gave up the prerogatives of deity, of being God, being worshipped by the angels and the seraphs and the saints. And he gave that up temporarily, and he came, and for 33 homesick years, he lived here on this earth. And then he went to the cross, and he died there for you and for me. And then, unfortunately, like Pat Tillman, he was also killed in the house of his friends, the psalmist said. I was wounded in the house of my friends. His own people rejected him. He died that horrible death as my substitute in my place. He died a death that was sacrificial beyond anything we could imagine. Out of the ivory palaces, the song says, into this world of woe, giving up heaven's glories for a manger birth, an agonizing death, a brutal death, a violent death like the death we witnessed on television this week, a death where he spiritually suffered, where he bore all the guilt and all the shame and all of the agony and all the punishment that every one of us rightly deserved, but he bore that for us. 
separated from his Father in heaven. We don't call him a hero. I call him Lord, and I call him Savior. And he means more to me than anyone else, and I don't love him. I didn't love him first. I love him because he first loved me, and he loves you. The most profound truth in the Bible, God loves you. The simplest, maybe, but profound. A.J. Gordon was a great preacher in Boston, a Baptist church, Clarendon Avenue Baptist Church, and he went there as a little struggling church, became a great congregation, a great influence across the world. A.J. Gordon said, I was in my office studying one day, and I finished my work and went down out of my office door into the little alleyway behind <clears throat> to go home, to walk through the streets of Boston to my house. This is about 100 years ago. He said there was a little boy coming down the street, and you'd call him a rag muffin, an inner city kid, a rough-looking, unkempt, dirty, filthy little boy. He said I, he was carrying a cage full of birds. And I looked at the cage, and there must have been eight or ten wild sparrows in the cage. And I said to the little boy, boy, what do you go, where'd you get those? <clears throat> the boy said, I was out in the field, and I baited them with some seeds, and I caught them. Well, what are you going to do with those little birds, boy? And the little boy said, I'm going to take them and feed them to the cat. I'm just going to watch the cat eat them. And Gordon said, I knew these kids, some of them were violent and very wicked little kids. And so I said, well, boy, how much would you sell that to me for? And A.J. Gordon said, the little boy said, well, I don't know, mister. And Gordon said, I reached in my pocket. And I said, I'll give you $5 for those birds, boy. Just give me that cage and those birds for $5. That was a good bit of money in those days. That'd be like a 20 or more today. He said, the little boy readily took it and handed me the bird cage. And Dr. Gordon said, I opened the door and set the bird cage up on a little pedestal there in the side of the building. And I opened the door and stepped back thinking the birds would fly out and they didn't come out. And so he said, I saw they weren't going to come out. They were afraid. They were cowering in the back of the cage. And so he said, I put my hand in. And I gently took one of them in my hand. And the bird struggled, but I brought him out. And I held my hand up in the air, and he flew off to freedom. And I put my hand back in the cage. And I took another one of them tenderly and grasped him. And I pulled him out, and I held him up. And I did that until the cage was empty. And he said, then I thought about how that Jesus paid to set us free and how that we cower and we don't want to come and respond for a whole myriad number of reasons, but that he loves us so. And he said, I thought, here I paid the ransom to redeem those little birds and give them their life, and yet they were afraid to come. And you know what? I read that story and I thought, Man, that's the way we are. God loves us, and yet 
doubt fills us. And so often we cower back instead of responding to him. And our heads are bowed and our eyes are I hope today that your heart has been touched as I have spoken to you about the love of God. Certainly that's the greatest theme, not only of the Christian faith, it's the greatest theme of the entire world, that the Creator God could actually personally love each one of His creatures. Obviously, He couldn't do that if He were not an infinite God, all-powerful, all-knowing the only being in the universe without any limitations whatsoever. And his heart is so big that he loves every one of the seven billion people who now inhabit this planet. And he demonstrated and proved that love, as I've just said a few moments ago, by the giving of his son to die for your sins. And the Bible says, as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the sons of God. If you've never received Christ as your Savior, you're not God's child. You can't call him my Father in heaven. But when you receive Christ, you come into relationship with him, and he becomes your heavenly Father. If you've never done that, I hope your heart has been touched as I've spoken about his great love, about how that Christ sacrificed so much for you. And I trust that today you will find a quiet place. If you can't get on your knees, if you can't though right where you sit, I want you to call on the Lord and say to him, Lord, I realize I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself, but thank you for sending Christ who has come to the earth and died for my sins long ago. And thank you that you care. And I receive Christ as my sin bearer. I no longer trust in my own self, my own righteousness. I trust in what he did. And I'm going to rest in the fact that you love me and he died for me. Then after you've done that, let me know. Send an email, a phone call, a letter, whatever. Contact us here. I'll send you some literature that'll help you get started in your Christian life and uh, let us know so that we can rejoice with you. That's the priority reason we put this program on the air each week. I hope you'll have a good week, a blessed week. And again, think about the love of God that's so great that no one can describe it. And keep that in your mind as you go through this week. And God willing, we'll see you next week here on Baptist Temple Hour. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of the Baptist Temple Hour. If you would like a copy of today's program, send your request in payment to the Florence Baptist Temple, P.O. Box 12809, Florence, South Carolina, 29504. Be sure to include today's date and the title of today's message. And please allow two to three weeks for delivery. For more information about the Florence Baptist Temple, visit our website at www.fbt.org.
We also want to extend to you an invitation to join us in person. Sunday school starts every week at 9 a.m. and the service begins immediately following at 10:30. Once again, the church family at the Florence Baptist Temple wants to thank you for tuning in this week, and we hope to see you next week for another edition of the Baptist Temple Hour.